Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Ben Hoffler. Ben is the co-founder of several hiking trails in the Middle East, including the Sinai Trail, the Red Sea Mountain Trail, the Wadi Rum Trail, and the Bedouin Trail, which aim to, to boost and promote sustainable tourism and help conserve the endangered heritage of the Bedouin tribes who historically live in these regions and manage the trails today. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining me. It's super to be here. Thanks, Maggie. So you started out in the Sinai, uh, I believe. So can you talk a little little bit about how you got into this path that you've taken? How did you first come to the Sinai? How did you discover sort of sustainable tourism um, as a career niche? Uh, like, like a lot of things in life, it was all quite messy. It was an accident. It was never planned. Um, it just happened. Um, I guess there was a few steps before it did happen. I was working in London um, and I began to get a little bit tired of the life that I had in London. It was working in an office. It was going to and fro on a commute that was the same every day. And uh, I began to feel a little bit disillusioned and to feel that life could be more than that. And I wanted to do something that mattered to me more. I had a friend uh, who was in Cairo and she said, come out to Cairo. Uh, I've got a job that you might like. That was a job working in uh, a media production studio. So that was doing um, uh, news and sports and, and various other kinds of stories. So I went out to Cairo and lived in Cairo for about a year and a half. I took a, a trip to the Sinai just to do what everybody else does, which is the sunrise trip on uh, Mount Sinai, um, climbed it in the night, saw the sunrise, and uh, I just totally fell in love with what I saw. I was captivated by the Sinai from the very first light. Um, and after that, I found any possible excuse I could to go back. 
uh, and gradually I got pulled into a world that felt very different to the one that I had lived in in London or Cairo or any other town uh, in my past. Um, it was a world that was one of nomadic heritage um, in which you found a lot of people still living uh, a mobile life and others that had uh, recently settled but remained very closely connected to uh, that way of life, um, maintaining it in part and still being very uh, linked to the mountains. So um, it, it was it was a chance uh, chance journey that took me into uh, the Sinai. It opened my eyes to a world that I loved. I, I went back at every opportunity. I got pulled into it uh, much more deeply. I became intensely curious about everything. Uh, I found um, a very deep sense of connection to uh, the natural world through the Bedouin, to all of its different parts, to the way that they work, to how we need to care for them. Uh, I found a deep sense of solitude. Um, I found things that I couldn't get in in a town. And I felt a, a place, I guess is what I'm saying, that made me feel a sense of peace at, at a deep level that I, I didn't want to leave. Um, and the idea of a hiking trail, I think came from me wanting to turn the journeys that I was making increasingly in, in the Sinai into something that could be useful for other people. So people that might be like me in a town wanting to escape or wanting to connect with um, the natural world or perhaps with people from uh, a totally different background to them. Um, and also wanting to give something back to the community that I felt had given me so much in um, showing me so much of their world and accepting me in, in such a degree into, into their community. And so when did you um, first start developing the Sinai Trail? Sinai Trail, um, we, de- we, we began developing that in 2014, but when we developed it, that I had been in the Sinai already for five years. I'd written a guidebook to the Sinai, to its trekking routes. So a way of thinking about the landscape in terms of trails was already at the forefront of my mind. Um, and the idea of the hiking trail was really inspired by a lot of the long distance trails that we saw in neighboring regions. So Jordan had uh, recently made one called the Jordan Trail. That's a country length trail from the north to the south of Jordan um, that aims to show the entire nation on foot. And and that had been inspired in turn by another one called the Lebanon Mountain Trail, which was the first real long distance hiking trail of its kind um, in the region. So, um, so we'd seen the, um, the impact that long distance hiking trails were having or could have uh, in the region and I, along with um, the the Bedouin um, that that I was working with in that time, usually on my book, uh, we began talking about it and asking ourselves, well, would this work in the Sinai? What challenges would we have if if we did it here? Um, What would we want to show? What story would we want that path to tell? Um, And what difference could it make? to the region so the Sinai Trail came out of those conversations and it came out of those conversations in a time when Sinai uh, was was in quite a tough spot so there was an insurgency happening in the north Uh, this was the time that 
um, ISIS were establishing a presence in, in different parts of the region. Um, so there was also a background to, to those discussions in which we saw a place that we loved um, being talked about in a way that we never felt was accurate and in a way that we never felt was showing the Sinai that we knew. We felt it was being represented mostly unfairly um, by people that weren't ever really part of it. So journalists that might come from Cairo, do their research and go back, uh, governments that um, might have reasons for advising people not to go, you know, for, for more about legal liabilities and not wanting to get into trouble and that kind of thing. So, so we wanted to um, push back on that. We wanted to 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 kind of do something, and we didn't really know what it would be. But a long distance hiking trail seemed like a good way to show a more accurate everyday side of a region, uh, walking step by step with people from the area who knew it better than anybody. Um, you know, seeing it unfold on the ground, um, that seemed like the best way we could um, possibly push back on those narratives and give the Sinai something that uh, mattered give the Sinai something that would allow to talk in its own voice um, and that could do something good for it. And so what was that sort of collaboration process like with the local Bedouin? You know, tr- these trails like the Sinai Trail cross the kind of hereditary tribal territories of several Bedouin groups. How do you, how did you liaise with those different groups and how do they communicate and collaborate with each other in the kind of co-managing of these trails? Yeah, so so the Sinai is a, a very tribally diverse region, uh, much more so than other parts of Egypt. If you go to the eastern desert of Egypt, you'd find three main tribes there. If you go to the Sinai, you'd, you'd find more than 20 uh, for the Sinai as a whole. Um, the, the area that we were working in was the south of the Sinai. So there were eight tribes living in the south, all of whom uh, held territory. And uh, when we began the Sinai Trail, it was a 220-kilometer path that would go from the sea to the highest point in Egypt. So we focused it at the beginning on uh, the better-known side of the peninsula. So that's the eastern side of the peninsula where tourism had always been known, at least for the last few decades before we'd started. Um, And then gradually over time, as we got more momentum and as the, the, the trail gained more validity, both internationally but also within uh, the Sinai itself amongst the Bedouin, that's the time that we began to expand it. So so at the beginning, I think it's it's important to say, just in, in case people might not be familiar with the, the tribal society of the Sinai or perhaps the wider Middle East, is that Bedouin tribes are much more connected than they are divided. Um, and they always have been. They, they share uh, ancestry a lot of the time. Um, they uh, have had historical alliances. They have helped each other historically, whether that might be uh, sharing their resources in a time of drought, whether it be water or pasturage or, or anything else. And there's, there's always been uh, a strong uh, a sense of sharing a, a heritage or sharing a culture that unites them, sharing a law as well that unites them. So um, we, we were never working in a region that was seriously divided. If anything, we were working in a in a region where the communities might be 
more connected in lots of ways than perhaps we'd find in mainland Egypt if we walked down the Nile. So, so a lot of connections already existed between those tribes, particularly the three that we began working with on, on the better visited eastern side of the peninsula. And my role, I think, was um, it was it was more being a, a point of contact that remained outside the tribal system. So a, a point of contact that would be trusted to 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 work without any kind of tribal interests if we were working towards the same goal. So I think that was the the role that I played in the process, and um, it was also about introducing people to each other that I thought would connect well and that I thought would uh, move towards the same goals. And it's also very important to say that um, my role was um, only one role. There was other people in the region with more influence than me from the Bedouin community that also had their roles in in bringing all of this together and advocating the idea that would see us collaborate towards a, an intertribal hiking trail. And so forth. So, so if anything, I would actually say that 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 part of the process was relatively easy, and it followed a similar method, a similar method as we we went round to the five remaining tribes in South Sinai. So we extended that path into the tribal territories of all eight of them in time. So that that was reached about five years after we we launched the the first two twenty kilometer trail. It became a much longer one, five hundred and fifty kilometers that, that went through all of those eight tribes. So so we'd established that legitimacy, we'd established that working method methodology. Um, these tribes have always been connected. Um, the, the bigger challenges really came from working in Egypt, which is to say working in a in a context that has always been difficult for the Bedouin and where doing anything with tribes is always viewed with suspicion. Um, that gave us a much bigger challenge than working between the Bedouin tribes. It was more connecting uh, the Bedouin with uh, the the authorities in Egypt and it was growing the legitimacy of, of the project as a, as a genuine tourism project that could be embraced by, by Egypt as a whole. And would you say that those challenges have sort of been surmounted? Um, or would you say that those are still present? You know, do you still feel like there's a kind of that you still face some suspicions on the part of the Egyptian authorities or maybe internationally as well towards these projects? Or do you think that their sort of longevity and success has kind of overcome those um, negative attitudes towards the Bedouin? It, 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 internationally, uh, absolutely not. Um, the, the difficulties that we've faced have been entirely domestic. Um, and... It would really depend on the uh, the branch of the the government that we were talking about. So the tourism ministry um, in Egypt certainly backed what we did um, in terms of kind of giving it some uh, coverage or giving it some exposure, um, uh, publicly standing up and saying that we're proud to have a project like this that shows the diversity of our, our peoples in Egypt. Um, the the people that were always difficult were the uh, the police and the secret police in Egypt. These uh, people gave us um, much more. Um, they they viewed us with much more suspicion, and they made our working life much more difficult than than anybody else. And and that remains the case broadly today. It it differs with 
the person that would be in charge. It differs with the region that we're working in. If we're working in the Red Sea Mountains, which is a range of mountains in mainland Egypt and in the eastern desert, so outside of the Sinai, um, where this kind of tourism is much more new, um, that would also be a, a different level of challenge to what we would have faced in the Sinai. And it's probably also worth saying that as, as we went on to, to extend the trail into um, other regions, so when we connected the three parts, the one in Jordan with the one in Sinai and the one in Egypt, the challenge of working in Jordan was, again, very different um, and significantly easier uh, without the kind of challenges that we ever had in Egypt. It was broadly supportive um, across the board. So that's my big takeaway from uh, doing those projects was that the, uh, the the tribal side of it was actually much more connected than most people might think and much easier than people might think. And the challenges really came from this, the the official authorities of the states in which we worked. And so I would imagine that then that project of extending the trails and creating these kind of multi-country trails comes with challenges as well. Or is that sort of the challenge of negotiating with and kind of liaising across and managing um, multiple countries and their authorities and uh, political departments? Or are there other challenges that come with that as well? Creating a successful trail, a lot of it relies on successful diplomacy, that's for sure. Um, That can be just beginning with a a cigarette and a cup of tea in a Bedouin tent, and it can go all the way up to talking with a tourism minister or a state governor or whoever it might be. So diplomacy is definitely important. Building a broad coalition of support is one of the major challenges that we would have um, domestically um, and to a, to a degree internationally, but um, in opening the, the international route, the Bedouin Trail that connects all of the three together, um, I, I certainly haven't seen any, any, any kind of thing that's gone beyond the challenge of creating the, the trails domestically. So that, that's been relatively, relatively easy, really. Uh, and so you mentioned, you know, when you were first creating or first developing the Sinai Trail, uh, having to think about where the trail should actually pass uh, and how it should show off the Sinai at its best or maybe capture the diversity of the Sinai at its fullest. So how did you actually achieve that, assuming that you think that you did achieve that? What are the kind of features of the Sinai that the trail passes through? Are you focused on um, highlighting ecological diversity, cultural diversity, sort of all of the above? Yeah, well, I I think, I mean, it's always hard for anybody to assess their own projects, but uh, for what it's worth, I think we did achieve that. Um, and I'd add that it wasn't achieved easily. Um, creating a path that I think shows the best of its region is is a process that takes a long time. It involves uh, going as deep as you can, uh, visiting every part of it that you can, walking every path that you find, um, every gully, every peak. Um, so it, it's a process of quite deep immersion and exploration that it all begins with. Um, And then gradually, like putting on a pair of spectacles, 
um, the region begins to come into better focus. And you begin to think, well, if I connected this path with that one, and then we went this way and that way, we would begin to uh, show this land in, 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 in the best possible way, in the way that we could bring out all of its richness. So that would be, for example, the physical beauty of the Sinai, which is extraordinary. It would be the um, the more intangible sides of it. So um, it might be rooting a path through a region that had a particular legend uh, attached to it or, or a memory of some kind. It might be going past a, a historical site that had, if not a significance for the Bedouin, perhaps a, a significance that might have shown the place that another civilization uh, had in that region in the past and which might have contributed to the making of the modern place that it is today, even if that might be forgotten. Um, it might be aligning with um, paths of different origin, so, so paths that might have been used by shepherds, paths that might have been used by pilgrims, paths that might have been used by smugglers, each of which has their own kind of journey history to it as well. It might be um, going through um, the territories of different Bedouin tribes, um, each one of which has their own history and identity and um, and culture. So, so it would be a, a case of also seeking to, to bring out that um, cultural tapestry of a, of a region that might simply be seen as, as Bedouin um, by people looking on from the outside. Um, so, so bringing out more within the Bedouin, the, the different uh, the, the things that makes their culture so rich when you go from one tribe to the next. Um, I think it was about also thinking about how can we divide this path in a way that's fair between um, each tribe. Um, so, you know, how, how can we make sure that one tribe uh, might not get, for example, 10 days of guiding along this and another one half a day? So... Um, there, were, there was lots of factors that, that went into to making the Sinai Trail, um, and all of them were very important, um, and, and all of them were done not just to think about the Sinai as a whole, but to think about the tribal territory that every tribe was very strongly connected to. When we went to a, a, a tribe, we would always sit and we would ask, well, this is your territory within a, a broader region. What's important to you in it? What stories would you like to show in it? What do you feel is important in it? What, what are the best peaks? What are the best views? What are the, the stories that you feel are most important here? So when we focused on that, we, we did it on a tribal level. And, and then I gradually all of those things would come together to present a path that I think would tell its own story about a land that isn't really known. And the path also would do that in a remarkable way. There's there's a lot of ways that we can tell stories today. Um, you know, we might tell them in books, we might tell them in newspapers, we might tell them in museums, in academic papers, however we might do it. Um, but a path also tells a story, uh, and particularly when it's guided by people um, from each one of those eight tribes whose territories it crosses, uh, and I often thought if there was a way to create um, a monument to um, the Sinai or to the Bedouin of the society as a people that have always been mobile and moved and um, who've used all of their skills to move successfully, um, a path would be the best way to do it. So I think and I hope at least that that's what we left behind when we 
created the Sinai Trail and, and pushed to, to keep it going through difficult times. Yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of tourism and, like you just said, a path and a guided path as a form of kind of living history and of cultural heritage preservation, uh, which I think is a bit seems at its face maybe a bit counterintuitive to how we're increasingly starting to think about tourism and becoming increasingly aware of how destructive often, especially ecologically and environmentally destructive tourism and over-tourism can often be. Um, and so these projects are uh, quite an inversion of that way of thought um, and are premised around this idea that um, that tourism, that access to these sites, that maintaining these kind of historic uh, paths um, and is a form of kind of heritage preservation, but that it's not just kind of one-sided from the Bedouin, that it's not quite just enough for the Bedouin to maintain these paths and these forms of knowledge on their own, but there's this kind of educational component that comes into it where the tourists play a role as well in this kind of heritage preservation as being the recipients of this knowledge um, and the kind of participants in this process of heritage preservation. I just think it's a really interesting model um, of heritage preservation among nomadic communities specifically where it's just i mean the nature of nomadic cultures and histories sort of inherently poses a challenge to heritage preservation with relatively few kind of material artifacts um, that can be preserved through kind of traditional modes of heritage preservation, like, as you just mentioned, like museums and, you know, monuments, things like that, um, are kind of difficult to enact um, among nomadic cultures. So, I'm wondering if you. I wonder if you think that um, this sort of model could be enacted in other contexts as well. You know, I understand this is sort of. You, you know, you have a kind of regional expertise in the Middle East, uh, but I wonder if you've thought about. You know, whether this model could be extrapolated to other contexts. You know, I'm thinking about nomadic communities in Central Asia, um, whether this form of tourism and tourism as kind of heritage preservation could be relevant in other contexts as well. It's hard for me to answer that because I always like to talk from a a position of knowledge and I haven't visited uh, nomadic communities or semi-nomadic communities or or mobile communities however we might define them in other parts of the world my my expertise is is really uh the bedouin uh, populations of the middle east but um philosophically if if we thought about it more abstractly um i would say that i would be reasonably certain that if it was adapted to its context then certainly it would have a value in in protecting knowledge that has, it's intangible and knowledge that has always been passed down between generations. Um, what the, the success of I, I think the 
the Sinai Trail or the Red Sea Mountain Trail or any of these trails that we've created, um, I think it's it's been about keeping intergenerational channels of communication open between older Bedouin and younger Bedouin, or rather creating a space where um, the the knowledge that's relevant to traveling safely through the desert or um, surviving in the desert can be kept open. Um, a lot of the time, what we found is that with with a lot of the communities settling down more in, in villages or towns, um, some parts of their culture have 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 actually survived that transition intact. So, I don't I don't think it's accurate to say that Bedouin culture, however we might define that, is lost with the transition to settlement. Some parts of it survive. You know, it might be the hospitality, it might be the the outlook on the world, it might be Bedouin law, it might be. Um, Bedouin music, any of these things, the the truly vulnerable parts of the heritage that I experience being lost are the ones that are related to to the knowledge of the land and the skills needed to survive in the land um, because they have to be learned in situ. They have to be learned from other people. They're not learned from books. They're not learned from museums. They they you, they have to be learned in in the desert environment. So with the trails, it's really been about giving people a reason to remain in that um, environment. I think it's been about trying to get people to um, to value jobs that would be guiding jobs, for example, over the other options that might be available, like perhaps driving a taxi or perhaps working in an office of whatever kind or a restaurant or something like that. Um, it's been about giving a financial incentive as well. So it's been about um, uh, keeping that space open where where that knowledge can be passed on. And I don't see any reason why uh, that couldn't work in a similar context to the Sinai with some adaptation. I'd, I'd also add that far more is going to be needed than tourism to keep cultural heritage alive for Bedouin communities. Um, what we see as as they move increasingly from the desert to settlements is is those vulnerable parts that I've just identified of the heritage are lost quite quickly, and when they're lost, they're very very difficult to get back. And although tourism certainly can help keep some of them alive, and some of those skills and some of that knowledge and the 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 memories of the legends and the place names and all of the things that give a place its richness. It's not enough to keep people in the desert living the same way that they lived before. And so it's not realistic to expect, as much as I'm an advocate for tourism, um, uh, being able to help the preservation of cultural heritage, I don't think it's realistic to think that it can do it alone. Uh, It can be a part of the process. I think it can underline as much as anything to... uh, authorities, governments, international organizations, that there's a a loss of critically endangered heritage going on here um, that, if if it continues, will be a a loss for all humanity. I think we can certainly also do that with tourism. And I think if we do that, there's a higher chance that uh, more enlightened policies towards Bedouin communities 
which wouldn't necessarily be saying, look, if you if you settle in a village, then we'll give you uh, schools, we'll give you education, you'll have services, you'll have whatever. It would be about presenting another option for them as well that they, they might choose, they might not, they might choose both. But it, it might be things about, you know, subsidizing um, feed for the animals. It might be about creating more wells in the desert. It might be uh, these kinds of things. So I, I don't think it's solely about creating the space in which that knowledge can be passed on. That's part of it. But it's also about underlining this as a an issue for our generations in our times. And so what about environmental challenges? Tourism is one of these causes and drivers of ecological destruction. So how do you sort of reconcile those tensions? How do you achieve sustainable tourism, basically? Is it a matter of kind of limiting tourists? Is that not a problem yet because there aren't even enough tourists traveling to the Sinai that that could be environmentally disruptive? That that at the moment, we don't have the scale of people hiking these projects to cause the type of damage that I think... um, you know, you're rightly saying is often caused and that we've got to be aware could be caused in the future. So, so that's the first thing. It's the scale of the tourism that, that are coming to do these things simply isn't at a mass market level yet. We've got to think about it in the future about the, the effect of any increase, but it's not there yet. Another important thing to say would be um, that the, the, the projects that we've created have quite an important differential to other ones. The differential is that they're guided by people from their communities um, who know the land well, who know how to care for the land well, and who are stewards and guardians of their place. So um, they, they will certainly tell everybody how to travel through this region uh, in the most sustainable way. They'll know how to use their resources in the most sustainable way, and it'll be a hundred percent in their interests to um, to keep those resources intact. I think if we did get up to a huge level of people coming, we'd, we'd have to think a little bit differently about it. It might be. Um, rerouting the route that people took between different years, um, giving uh, different parts of the landscape the chance that they would need if it ever got to that level to regenerate. It might be about um, uh, bringing in resources, whether it would be water or anything else from outside before we went into these places. But in terms of the impact that hiking has uh, as well, you know, don't forget that it's it's by by nature quite a, a low impact activity. People are moving boots on the ground, um, camels are treading these paths. So it's a little bit different to to jeeps driving over these regions, over the dunes or over the tracks, and and we're treading paths on the trails that have been there for a long time. They've been there for centuries. They've sometimes been there for millennia. And there's been chapters in the past where they've certainly in some parts of Egypt, such as the Eastern Desert, been much more heavily used uh, than they are today. And and those landscapes have always seemed to to come back and, and be okay. So it's definitely something 
we think of, but I think there's a number of safeguards in place that we, we put there through guides and, and that are also there just through the nature of these places and the number of people that want to go. So we, you mentioned challenge, uh, one of the main challenges of these projects being uh, the perception of the region is unsafe. So I'm wondering how you have sort of dealt with that. And I wanted to ask also about other, uh, another more recent uh, obstacle to tourism being COVID um, and how that has impacted uh, tourism and of course the livelihood um, that the Bedouin might have started to draw from these projects. COVID was a huge challenge. I would go so far as to say that COVID uh, w- was was much more dangerous to the survival of our projects than um, any of the bad news that came out of Sinai, although that obviously made tourism very difficult. Um, and uh, there's, there's no real big answer to this, except to say that those projects survived because we loved them and we had a community of people who loved them. Uh, we had almost zero tourism for... Um, the first year after the pandemic broke out and uh, the projects were never supported so they, they never had grants or subsidies or anything else from uh, governments uh, we can't get any kind of subsidies from international aid organizations in egypt because it's forbidden um in in our region doing what we do so um covid was a challenge there's no doubt about it and and we survived just because we had an exceptional group of people that stuck it out, volunteered their time um, and and got it through to a time when tourism picked up again. About the perception of um, Sinai in particular being unsafe, um, Sinai was always a challenge, much more than other parts of Egypt like the Red Sea Mountains and certainly much more of a challenge than Jordan has ever been. Um, And I think the the, the way that we began to deal with that was we created an event called Sinai is Safe. So this was way back at at the the kind of height of the insurgency in 2014, 15, 16. That was an event that brought together uh, a wide community of people from Cairo and other parts of Egypt to come and walk in the so-called danger zone in Sinai. So a tremendous variety of people and to say, look, we're here, we're walking, uh, we trust the Bedouin. Um, that are often misrepresented in the media and we feel safe. And and that was true. That was said with integrity and it was said with honesty. We felt safe and we had all of the information before doing all of those trips to, to know that it was safe. It actually was safe on the ground. It wasn't just a hunch. We, we knew it was safe through uh, the channels that we have to Bedouin leaders that know that region very well. And we, we came out and we said that in quite a strong way and we said it in public and um, people came to, to, to those events like journalists and, and they began to ask more, more questions. They began to connect to uh, Bedouin leaders that knew this region exceptionally well and that could talk about it in their own voice. And slowly we began to create a counter narrative to all of the bad news, um, you know, that Sinai is the, the troubled peninsula, it's Um, you know, this frontier of danger and you shouldn't go. And people obviously being kind of uh, seeing images most of the time of ambushes and horrific things that were happening. Um, Gradually, we we began to say with confidence, 
um, that actually that's not the Sino that we know and that's not what's happening here. And if anybody wants to go out in public and, and say that it is, we're going to challenge you. And we're going to challenge you from a, a position of real knowledge and real experience. So uh, if you do want to say it's unsafe, go ahead, but we'll also come back and we'll discuss it. And so maybe just a final question as we're coming up on the end of our time. Uh, I'm curious about future plans and future projects, you know, as we're uh, as the tourism industry is rebounding um, from COVID. And you mentioned um, the recent opening of the Bedouin Trail and this uh, multi-country trail. Art, do you have other projects in mind um, that you'd like to work on? I, I feel um, I've I've made the contribution uh, that I I could make. Um, I've I've left the um, the most precious thing that I could leave personally for uh, a region that gave me so many precious things. Um, I I had one part in that process, and many other people had very big roles as well. So it's important always to remember them. But for me personally, I think. Um, uh, the, the challenge now, it's not developing new routes as such. There's always new trails to develop, and I'd love to go and do that in, in all kinds of places, um, perhaps extending them into Bedouin communities of different heritage in Egypt, um, the Bija peoples, perhaps the uh, the Amazigh peoples, um, and there's stuff that we could do on the other side in Asia going into many different parts of um, the Hejaz and the Hisma deserts and things like that. But Right now, I think that the real challenge is to consolidate what we've done um, and to make that really work uh, for the future. So that's what we'll be focusing on for uh, certainly the next few years. And then after that, we might think about some some new projects. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me uh, and for sharing your work in this region. Uh, it's really interesting and really, I think, uh, important projects. Uh, so thank you for sharing some of the backstory behind them. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Maggie.